Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Open Bar Experience. David Dacker, your host. Please check out the website, openbar.space. You can also find me on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Alexa, and Overcast. All right, so today I'm here with uh, Cesar Cano, which is a, he is a chef uh, that recently was on uh, MasterChef. But he had about a decade of experience prior to that, uh, went into teaching. Um, long story. And the interesting thing about this story to me is a couple of points. One, um, being a son of an immigrant mother. And two, is that he left the industry for the reason that many, many of us uh, get frustrated and either leave the industry or um, sometimes just stay in it and uh, live very miserable lives. So, uh, Cesar, thank you for uh, being on the show. Hey, David, thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Um, so, first, let's start with uh, how'd you get in the industry? Or, you know, yeah, you, you're native Houstonian. Uh, no, I was uh, born in Mexico um, and I lived there till I was seven and then uh, moved over here because my dad had been living here since the early 80s. And my mom and I and my uh, one of my sisters were in Mexico. And they had this conversation about if we're going to be a family, we should be living in the same place. So um, I was brought over here when I was seven, and I've been living in Houston ever since, about 28 years. Oh, Houstonian, wow. Okay. Yeah. So second home now. Yeah, no mm-hmm. doubt. Um, so then how would you get in the industry? How would you start cooking? Uh, it, was, it was not like this. I don't have that story where, oh, you know, the spices in my grandma's kitchen and this and that. Uh, I started cooking mostly because it was, I'm the oldest of three. And like that, a lot of responsibility fell on me. And part of my chore list was to help my mom get dinner ready. Uh, so I had to clean the bathroom. I had to keep my room tidy and help do dinner. That's what those are things that were uh, I was in charge of. And around 10 or 11, my mom was like, okay, come help me. You know, you cut the onion or cut the tomatoes while I'm doing all this other stuff. So she had me doing like the, the labor of the kitchen for her so, so we could all eat. And that went on till I was like 15, 16. And I started getting into high school and I took like a home ec class because I was like, oh, you know, I'm already doing it at home. But home ec didn't wasn't what it turned out, what I thought it was going to be. It was mostly just kind of kids goofing off. Uh, and then I was like, I was about to graduate and we all have to face that terrible decision. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? That's a lot of pressure. I, I always tell my students, like, we train you guys to not do anything. And then 18, all of a sudden, I'm like, all right, it's all on your shoulders, you know? Um, and you have to pick something that that's it. So it was, it was a logical decision for me to go into culinary because being from an immigrant family, being the only male uh, son, it's that, it's that old old school training of at some point you're going to have your own family so you better be able to provide for them so you got to you got to learn to do something where you can put bread and food on the table so with all that pressure i was like okay i got to think about things that will always be in need of work or workers and i was like i could be a doctor because people always get sick i could be a mechanic because cars always break down or i could learn to cook and you know work in a kitchen because people will always go out to eat And of those three, I thought uh, the eight plus years of education for a doctor was like way too much. And I knew I was going to have to take out loans. So I was going to be in debt the rest of my life. 
uh, mechanic work, I was like uh, kind of between that one, but I didn't have too much experience in it. And I was like, well, I've already been, you know, doing some cooking. Uh, let me give this a try. So I decided to go to culinary school after high school. Oh, so which one did you go to? Oh, I went to Art Institute uh, here in Houston, but the old location when it was still on Yorktown, not the 59. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, wow. So then going from the, um, okay, so you went to school. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, uh, some people go into a kitchen and they train and then they move their, their way up. So yeah. how, how was it going into to school and being taught uh, uh, techniques, methods, and all those things, and then actually going and working in the kitchen? Yeah, that's a good point you bring up um, because when I went to, when I was going to culinary school, I wasn't working in the industry. I was working selling car insurance. Uh, and then I, and then at some point I was like, maybe I should get a job in a restaurant, you know, to see if, I'm, if this is really what I want to do. So because in, in class, I would see all these people who were already working in the restaurant or had been and like their knife skills were on par. You know, they were already and I, I was barely learning how to sharpen knives, how to hold knives. Uh, and then I'd go home and like practice and it would take me five, six hours to get one plate ready you know like all right mom i got it's my turn to practice i got to do it all so i get like every pot and pan that we had dirty because uh, i try to recreate it the way we learned at school uh so it was really it, i felt out of place so at some point i, I at the insurance insurance company i was working for i was like you know guy, you know what guys i need to go work in a kitchen because i don't know if this is going to be it so my first kitchen job ever was in pasadena uh that's where i, I went to school and i lived close by at Orion's Family Buffet. They're not around anymore, but they were kind of like Golden Corral's rival. Yeah. So I was the baker there. But it wasn't really baking. It was just like mixes that I had to add water or oil to. And it was just about keeping it stocked. So it was it was pretty chill. <laughs> I was going to say, it's like, man, baking is something that is, is difficult. Like, you know, a, a good pastry chef is hard to, to find and harder to keep. Yeah. Because you can't pay them enough. That's true. That's true. So, no, it was, no, it was not no, that kind of baking. It was just uh, Betty Crocker kind of style. You know, add some water to this powder and you're, you're set. Throw it in the oven. Yeah. Okay. So then uh, once you, you finish school, um, where'd you go? So I graduated uh, while well, I was still at the Ryan's Family Buffet. And then I was like, okay, you know, this was cool uh, as an intro. And then I did a lot of bouncing around. I was working at a Cajun place uh, where I had to work Fry Station. So if you can imagine, like, fried catfish, fried any, everything fried. And I was on the busiest station. So I'm always grateful to that place. Uh, it was the Boudreaux's down on, uh, what is it, 45 South in Fuquay, because that's where I learned speed. Um, I had to, and, and how to memorize what the orders were coming. Like, I still, it hasn't happened in a while, but when I was working there, I would dream the ticket machine. I was like, you know, I wake up, I was like, did I put that in the oil, you know? And then I worked at a corporate world, because... It, the opportunity came up, so I was working at, at the Chevron Cafeteria building. Uh, and there I got to, you know, I started kind of meeting some uh, more cooler chefs or chefs that, you know, see cooking as a craft. Uh, I met uh, Chef JJ, Jonathan Jones uh, over there. I met Richard Knight over there. Um, and then I went with Richard. He, he was going to open up his p- first place in Conroe, uh, the Taverna. And he asked me to come along. And I was like, I think that's something if I'm going to be a cook everyone should have an experience how do you open a restaurant so you were part of the uh, goat menu yeah <laughs> i was part of the goat menu yeah i was there when uh like he said allison cook came in and we we're like who's that old lady over there because you know i didn't know what she looked like uh my friend eric was also working with us he's like i think that's who it is uh and then the uh, wrote so it was like only 
that was a tiny staff. It was uh, Richard, it was James, it was myself, Eric, and another cook. So like, you know, minimal staff. We did the dishwashing, we did everything. So when that write-up on the Chronicle came, the next weekend we just got slammed. Like we weren't, you know, we weren't ready for that uh, influx of uh, clients coming in, of, of guests coming in. Uh, but that was a really cool experience. That's where I was working like six days a week, you know, 14, 16 hours, but I was 22. And I was cool with it because I was like, this is my passion. This is what I want to do. Yeah. So, so okay. Did, were you ever the, the drinker? Have you ever drank a lot? And that recently. When I was, I was like, and this all t- you know, ties up to my upbringing. When I went out to Conroe, I might have had like two beers. But then, because I was working such long hours, yeah. I was like, I'm at home at three in the morning. I'm still like wired up from all this adrenaline. So I was like. This is why everybody drinks after their shift. I get it now. So that's when, like, my relationship with alcohol began. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I asked because of that same reason. Whenever you have those kind of hours, uh, that kind of, like, you're talking about uh, working the fry station that is the, the busiest, um, having a write-up that just brings everyone out. And it's, and it's it, unless you've experienced it, you don't know. Because I remember working in places that the minute I walked in at, 315 345 to do to prep for the evening um we were already slammed we had been slammed like the the that in between uh law uh didn't happen right between two and four uh it didn't happen and so you walk in and there's you know uh 60 of, of the restaurant is full and it's about to hit 100 percent in about another hour so you better get your prep done real quick sometimes it's like forget it the guy leaving is gonna do it just get on the floor start picking up uh tables uh, but it's an experience that that puts so much stress on you and uh, pushes you so that you're right. You get off at 11 o'clock, midnight, 2 o'clock, it doesn't matter what time, right. and you're just ready to go. Exactly. It's like, what are we going to do now? Yeah. And you just did a 10-hour shift. But at 22, mm-hmm. 24, 25, like it, it's it's nothing. Exactly. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's sort of like uh, for me in, in, in this podcast, it's been a, a matter of talking about it openly so that way – when for those people that are in that place mm-hmm. can understand that okay this is it it's normal but it's unhealthy mm-hmm. to once it it lasts too long yeah. so yeah. that's why I was curious if you were because I I I also known of a few very very few people that don't drink right, at all right. never yeah. did it's rare it's rare exactly. but it does it does happen so I wasn't sure no. no and and I mean I would drink you know two or three just to wind down and be able to sleep because if not you sleep two three hours and you get up and do it all over again yeah because then you got to be back at, at 10 exactly. or 9 to to do lunch service yeah it's just this vicious cycle yeah because out there I mean we were working both lunch and dinner service you know we kind of closed for two or three hours uh, to give us time to just reset the kitchen but we were working both shifts so it was yeah long long days so then after you did all that and um, you changed careers um not yet like that's when I first started burning out, you know, where I was like, you started burning out at, at 22 At 22. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, I've already helped open up a place. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, so I was out there for a year in Conroe and then I came back and I was like, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to give something else a try uh, just because of the hours I'd been working. I had not had a social life and all, you know, you get the pressure from or the invitations. It's not even that much. uh not cool calling the pressure, the invitations from friends that aren't in the industry. It's like, hey, it's so-and-so's birthday and we're going out for drinks on Friday. Or, hey, you know, I'm, ha- I'm grilling at the house Saturday night. Why don't you come through? 
and you have to say no so many times that people just stop inviting you. And I was like, man, I'm 22, 23. Do I want to be stuck at work all the time while my friends are having this blast? My family's having get-togethers all the time that I'm missing out. I was like, let me pause and let me try to do something else. So I became an apprentice electrician for like six months. <laughs> for, for this, yeah. You did what? A- apprentice electrician. So I, I got hired on with this company that uh, they mostly focus like on building out new dental offices. And I just go in and, you know, like I was a helper. So I would just like unload the truck, carry all the cables. And, you know, I started learning a few little things. But you had your nights back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I did that for a while, but um, I got that's the thing. Like I got hooked on the just the speed of service. And whenever I would go to this eight to five uh, doing this electrical work, it seemed boring and slow. I was like, dude, it's not even noon yet. And I'm already done with everything they gave me to do because I still had my cook mind. You know, I was like, OK, here's my list. Boom, 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 boom. Knock it out as fast as possible because something's going to come up. So I, it would be like these really boring days as an electrician. With uh, with uh, bartending and waiting tables and kitchen, you know, restaurant and bar work is like people are hungry now. Yeah. You got about 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes max to, to get uh, an individual's food out. Right. With drinks, you got, you know, 10 minutes max. And then, you know, be, you know, that's that's a long time. But the the point being that there isn't this thing to where you can kind of put things off for later yeah. there it's there is now and the later means in two minutes <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure and and sometimes i feel when i meet people that don't have that built-in sense of urgency i'm like it should be required that after everyone finishes high school they do two years in restaurant work just so you can understand and, and that like that shapes you for the rest of your life it teaches you a lot of things that you're going to carry on to your personal life i, I like it's a benefit Absolutely. I think that in the military, yeah. right? Because it's sort of like you're, it, it, you you give away part, uh, your time in, in the sense that it, it's not whenever you want to, it's now. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And for instance, uh, you know, some of the people that I know that are really great at craft cocktails uh, worked at, you know, places like a bowling alley. Yeah. Right. To where it's like nobody cares about how good the drink is. Right. Well, no, no, that, I'm not going to say that, but people aren't there because the drinks are good. Exactly. They're there to have a good time, and they're going to have a drink. Right, that's secondary. It's secondary, experience. right, um, if that much. And and those, whenever people, whenever those people shift into, like, I want to learn as much as possible about the uh, about cocktails and the history and, and, and all that, it they're able to have that sense of urgency. So it's like always figuring out how can I – do something before like or that prep your meets and plots all of a sudden becomes very important in the front of the house as it is in the back of the house because if you you know if you don't have things in place then you're going to be running around looking for mint there's nothing worse than prepping while you have to put orders out that's that's like if you want to shoot yourself in the foot that's the way you do it Uh, make sure you know where your mint is at you know everything and put it in the same spot so it's automatic you don't even have to look anymore your hand just reaches for it because it's always there yeah exactly so then uh after all that okay so i did the my sting at blue collar kind of work uh construction and i just missed that rush and i was like okay i gotta go back uh and i started i you know i lived down in the southeast side so there was a place in the clear lake area collins and you know it was supposed to be uh little fine dining, you know, kind of really bringing new flavors and techniques to, to the Pasadena area. And I went and applied 
And uh, sure enough, uh, Chef Paul Lewis was the uh, executive chef there. And he had some ties, or he knew Richard Knight, because uh, at that point they were uh, right in Feast. That's when uh, Feast was uh, blowing up. So everybody kind of knew them around town. So he was, uh, my, my Chef Lewis, he was like, if I call Richard right now, what would he say about you, you know, work-wise? I was like, well, I think, I think it'd be all positive. And I don't ever know if he actually made that phone call. Um, but I got the job there. And, it, and there, I think, is where I struck the most balance. And I was the happiest in the industry. Because I had morning shifts, and I was off Sunday, Monday. Um, so 4 or 5 o'clock, you know, I was, I was home. Uh, but I still, I, so I was getting both the rush of working in a kitchen and that adrenaline fix, but I also had plenty of time to have a social life. Um, and I was there for like five years because it was, it was balance. I was like, this is what it's about. You know, I can, I can do both. Um, but then I, at this point, I'm like 27, 28. So then there's different kind of external pressure building up for Mexican males at that age. Or not even just Mexican, just like Hispanic males. Because um, every summer I'd go to, uh, I, I always go back home. And I had, I had cousins who were like five years younger than me married with three kids. So everybody was like, well, why aren't you getting married? You know, why don't you have kids? I was like, well, that's not, that's not my lifestyle, you know. Uh, so then I started thinking, I was like, okay, eventually at some point, maybe I will have a family. Uh, and this is kind of where I started falling out philosophically in the industry where even though I had the perfect balance of time and I got, I got out of it what I wanted, I knew that there were some pitfalls that I wasn't going to be able to cover. Um, you can be a line cook all your life and make decent living if you're single, you know, but if at some point you're going to have to like provide for other people, you have to move up into management. You have to become, you know, sous chef, executive sous, and eventually hopefully, at some point, either chef owner or executive chef. That's that's where the salaries are to allow you to have that kind of life. Um, and then I was like, but those cooks or those people that get to these positions, those chefs, they spend very little time on the stove anymore. You know, executive chefs, their work is paperwork, scheduling, hiring, uh, ordering, budget, all that stuff. So they spend a lot of designing, you know, maybe conceptualizing the menu, but they're not the ones executing it on a daily basis. So this was like two years of, if I sink myself into this industry to make a decent living, I have to get to that point. But at that point, I won't be cooking as much anymore. If I stay as a line cook or prep cook, which is what I love, because I'm actually involved with food, I'm not going to make enough money to have the kind of lifestyle that I want. Um, so it really became a hard choice of do I want to be defined by my job or do I just want my job or my career to be a tool to help me lead the life that I want? Um, and after a lot of like, you know, soul searching and thinking about it, I, I, it was time to call it quits. Um, and I was like, OK, now what do I do? And another passion I've always had is uh, reading and writing. Um, because I immigrated here and we had like no family, like my family was the first ones. It was my dad, my mom and my sister, and we knew no one else, uh, no cousins, no uncles, nothing. So the way I spent all my summers um, when I was a kid was just in the library because uh, it was free. You know, my parents didn't have to pay for it and I could take home as many books as I wanted and I could just bring them back. In air conditioned, exactly, because we didn't know what Houston heat was like, you know. Um, so I developed this this uh, affinity, this passion for the written word, and 
in my high school years and throughout my career, English was always my favorite, uh, my favorite class. I just, you know, loved reading, talking about it, dissecting a novel. I was like, you know what, I could go back and, and become an English teacher. And then I would have a stable job. I would have plenty of time off. Like, that's why I'm here today, because summer is the happiest time of the year for teachers. <laughs> Uh, so I decided to go back to school. I spoke with, chef, uh, with, with Paul, with Chef Paul Lewis. Uh, he's kind of like my culinary dad. And I was like, hey, man, these are my plans. Um, uh, and he's like, well, you know, I really, I really thought you were going to like move up, move up in the industry, kind of help me, you know, start a place one day or be my secondhand guy. Um, but if that's what you want to do, you know, and, and I'm grateful to him because he was so supportive with my scheduling. Once I went back to school full time, you know, my work schedule was built around my school schedule and not many places, you know, are willing to do that or support their employees in that way. Uh, but he was. And and that's how I was able to do it. Um, so I went back. It took me about four and a half years to finish my English degree. And by the time I was 30, that when I, that's when I was bowing out out of, out of the kitchen world yeah, and became full time educator. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah, no, you, you're right, because. I've had the opposite experience. Whenever I went back to school, I was penalized for, uh, yeah. for it. Even though I had the place that I was at, I had trained the whole staff. I had helped them weed out the, the, the people that weren't um, any good at what they were doing. Right. It really didn't care is more than like it. Um, I, got, I was put in the smallest section with the <laughs> – yeah. like I was put in the shit set station. And so what I did was I would take early hits and late hits. And so my, my money didn't suffer. Because I, 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 you know, whenever you're in school, as you would know, like it's hard to switch jobs. For sure, yeah. It's not an easy thing to just switch jobs when you're in the middle of a semester. Yeah, tuition's gotta be paid. Yeah. yeah, but it, yeah, and that that gap mm-hmm. time that you have between this paycheck and that paycheck, plus then you have to study a new menu. Right. Uh, you have to get used to a new environment. You're not sure that they're gonna keep you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because they might say, "Ah, oh, well, you're not really dedicated." It's like, "Fuck, bro." Um, but no, I, I get it. And that's really good. Yeah. I think that that needs to that needs to become the norm sure. to where people are supported whenever they're in these transitions because you never know the person might come back or uh, even that I don't think that even matters I think the most important thing is that you're helping someone be contribute to the community that you're a part of right. and so yeah it, it's more about just being good to your fellow human being you know here's someone who's has a new goal is trying to better themselves. And by bettering themselves, like you said, eventually better the community. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of helping that that happen? And that's another thing. I don't know if it's just the the restaurant industry, um, but it's. I've always compared it's like it, it just sucks everything out of you: your time, your passion, your physical prowess, and it sometimes gives very little in return. You know, like it's a, it's not a balanced relationship when you work in the restaurant industry. So here's my my view on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people that are attracted to the restaurant industry have um, a certain demeanor, a certain way of, of looking at life. And that's the reason we get hooked right. on, on the uh, adrenaline, right? Sure. Which is like, you know, once you go through that one shift, because I've seen it too many times, mm-hmm. right? I've seen it both sides. I've seen it that once somebody gets hit on a Friday night, they either, f- you see them, it's like they're just rushed. This is it, yeah, exactly. right? Or the ones that just break. And it's like, fuck you. I'm out of here, <laughs> right? And I, and I think that because of that, then it's full throttle the whole time. So, again, you get off, you're, you're still amped up, so you have drinks. And those three drinks no longer yeah. are good in, in three months. It's four drinks and five drinks. So you go in hardcore at that, too. Mm-hmm. 
and you start to forget a lot of the things that create balance in a healthy life. I, I think that's more of it. And because the support system in the past um, hasn't existed and it's been really cutthroat, I, I think for no good reason. Again, I think that right now there is a different generation coming up that is at least conscious of these issues and are making an effort to at least themselves do something different. And then I hope that as they move up in the industry, they will, that will affect the way they run their staff, mm-hmm. right? Because right. I know a few young bartenders now that are doing really good stuff, um, and part of that is in the health uh, and wellness uh, arena of what we don't haven't had in this industry. True. And so I think that given a few more years, as they, again, move up, right. I think they, they will have a very positive effect on how this industry is ran. Right. And then but then you have the pressures of, you know, profits. Mm-hmm. Right. And and those are very real because, yeah. you know, what's the point if you can't uh, if you if what's the point of taking care of your employees whenever you have to actually fire them eventually or lay them off because right. you don't have a restaurant or bar. Yeah. So then you went into teaching. Yeah. You, do you like it? Uh, I do. I do like it. Uh, it's a. It's a different way of engaging, kind of like what you're saying with the next generation. And um, especially because I, I teach in Pasadena where most kids, they say, okay, well, I'll just go work in the plants and ma- and start making six figures at the age of 18, 19. And I'm like, that's cool. There, I, there's, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I just, I, I just, I'm there to kind of say, look, but there's still more than that. Don't just stay in this tiny world that is... I make good money, I have a big truck, I have a good house, I grow with my buddies every Saturday and Sunday evening, you know. Um, you can do that, but then you can go out there and see so much more. Uh, so now that I'm a teacher, and because I went through the same schools that uh, most of my students d- uh, go through, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that that's my role for them, and that's what I get the most enjoyment out of. of hey, I'm someone who came from the same area you did, and there's a whole world out there that you got to go go out and explore. So that's the most satisfying part of uh, of my teaching teaching career. Okay, so how did a teacher come across MasterChef? <laughs> the tryout. That's like the number one question I get. Um, okay, so I still kept certain. I mean, after 11 years in the industry, you can't just like shake it overnight, you know. So I still kept a lot of aspects of it in my in my personal life. Uh, one, I would cook for myself. I would not buy lunch at work. Uh, even when I was a student, I never, I never liked cafeteria food. Like my mom would make tortas and cause the school that the high school that I went to was only like an eight minute drive. And she like, go drop them off to me. Cause I hated the cafeteria food or she'd make gorditas and, you know, take, take them like in a little foil and they were still warm. Cause you know, they she just made them. I was like, okay. So when I became a teacher, I was like, well, I, I got to pack my own lunches now. Um, and then, so I, I met this coworker and sometimes she'd eat, uh, lunch in my room and sometimes I'd eat lunch in her room. And she noticed that I always brought my lunch and she's like, Oh, did you make that? I'm like, yeah, you know, I put it together. So she was a huge or continues to be a huge fan of the show MasterChef. And one night she was watching it and she saw this, uh, commercial that said, Hey, there's going to be Houston auditions for the next season. Um, so she like typed down or wrote down the the link and she sent it to me. He's like, Hey, I saw the show and your food's always good. You should go try out. 
And I'm like, I don't know. You know, that that part of my life is kind of over. That was a cool phase in my 20s. But now that I'm 31, I'm not about it anymore. But she just kept asking every single day, did you fill out the application yet? That I filled it out just so she would stop asking me. I was like, yes, it's done. We don't have to have this conversation anymore. And I forgot about it. I forgot about it until the week of the auditions. Uh, audition was on a Saturday. And they called me on Wednesday. And they're like, hey, we just wanted to remind you that you had signed up for this audition. You have to be here between 10.30 and 11, bring a dish ready to plate. You won't be able to like, you know, you have to have everything ready. We're just going to give you three minutes to put it on a plate. So don't expect to cook here. And that same Saturday, I was going to go do a a fundraising 5K in Galveston. And the auditions were at Art Institute, but all 59 now. So I'm like, what in the world can I take with me to Galveston in a little cooler that by the time I get to the audition, it's still good to present so i was like man i'll just make a salad you know salad holds well it's cold i can put it with some ice and it's good to go so i show up to this audition and i got there like at 11 and there was already i was already number like 306 and the auditions were going to go till like eight and night so i was like easily a thousand people were going to go through there you know um so they put me in my audition group and they're like all right go plate and we plated all of our stuff and i'm looking around next to me and i see pasta dishes i see rack of lamb i see lobster filet mignon i was like well this is i didn't even put protein in my salad i was like well this is as far as this is gonna go um but they came and tried it and they liked it and they asked me why i put it together and at this point, like for me, cooking had become really personal because I wasn't it wasn't the way I made a living anymore. I just did it at home for fun, for myself to eat and to invite friends over. So I got to the point where every dish that I was making was more about um, capturing something, capturing a person in my life, capturing a memory, capturing a, a place that I ate at. So for this dish, for this salad that I took, I decided to think about my grandma. And all the things that she would give to me as a kid and how could I could compose something out of that. So when they asked me why I did that, why I brought a salad uh, and I explained my story behind it, I think they, that really resonated with them and kind of with what the show, what one aspect, major aspect of the show is, is the why of food. And then it just became this really long process of months of auditioning, um, sending in videos, tape, anything. And it wasn't until like February of 2018 that I got the phone call and they're like, hey man, we're flying you to LA. And I was like, okay. And, he's, and they're like, this is just the next part. Uh, it's not a guarantee that you'll be on the show. Um, so when I got out there, there was still more things to do, um, but I kept staying on. I, at, at any moment I was like, they're, you know, they're gonna send me home. This was cool, good story to tell. But I stayed on, uh, became one of the 24 to get an apron and to actually be on the season. And I made it all the way to the end. I was the la- last three standing. The finale was three cooks, and I was one of them. Yeah. Well, that's that's pretty badass to somebody that, that did it just so someone would stop asking. <laughs> and so, so do you think that that was what carried you? Was part was the story, mm-hmm. but is it was it also because earlier whenever you mentioned that this industry like it can take your passion away, and I and I know because. You know, been there, but also I know people that have gotten out and they're like, "Ooh, I, I love making drinks again or, right. or cooking again," and and maybe because of that, you were putting a lot more, um, I guess, honest mm-hmm. passion into it versus the thing that is like, "Oh, I have to do it because I have to be better." Right, right, yeah. No, 
what I'm really grateful for uh, being part of the MasterChef experience was that it put me back in food 24-7. Uh, so while I was out there, you know, doing the competition and stuff, it was kind of like being back in the industry. And I was like, oh, yeah, there's so many things about this world that I miss and that I forgot I love so much. Um, the rush, you know, because a lot of people ask me, was the time real? I was like, I didn't think it was when I went out there, but it's real. So if it's 20 minutes on the clock, we have the, that's it. You don't get more. The editing and cutting always happens before the challenge or after. Like if you need to go to the restroom, you better go before it starts because they're not going to stop it. So you can go to the restroom and come back. So it was that environment of, I got to get this done and I got to get this done now. So I got, you know, I was like, oh yeah, I love this part of it. And then I made it a point to everything that I cooked on there was going to be a reflection of everything that shaped me. Of course, my Mexican heritage, but I ended up working in so many types of kitchens, you know, and incorporating so many techniques and flavors into my dishes that I can't call it Mexican anymore. It's just my version of Mexican food. Um, and I made sure that everything I made on there highlighted the principles that I was instilled with growing up from my mom, from my dad. And, and I, th and so I'm grateful for the experience because it made me fall in love with food again and with making food. Uh, not, I want to go back into the restaurant in industry, but I, I could enjoy cooking again because it got to a point when I was working in restaurants that I hated going into work. You know, I was like, the alarm would go off. I was like, got to go in there, you know, and it wasn't even fun to cook. It wasn't even fun. I had no joy out of it. So MasterChef being a, a contestant on it gave me my joy in cooking again. And for that, I, you know, I'm eternally grateful. Yeah, I've been there too, yeah. uh, to where I remember. And it has after that, it really hasn't happened to me. Mm -hmm. But maybe about six years ago, I want to say there was this one job that I had and it was the owners were horrible people even though they have a very successful restaurant right now in the in the Montrose area mm -hmm. but it horrible because the conversation that I had with them when I got hired was bar manager mm -hmm. and I remember one experience to where they left like the weekend they hired me and then they left for the weekend and uh and so the staff is like uh who are you right. and I'm like well I'm, I'm the new bar manager next day I get a text it's like why are you telling people you're the new boss and I'm like whoa and this is like four days into being in the job and so uh so then, like about two weeks into it, I'm I'm, dra I'm driving to work and I'm just dreading it, mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh fuck, this is not good. Two weeks into the job and I'm dreading it. Mm -hmm. Usually, like this is you know it's a year, right. you know six months if it's like you know a really, usually a, a bad you know experience. Yeah. Like it takes a while, and um, and yeah, and, and that was pretty much it. I mean, it was I was there for about two and a half weeks right. or or so. But it's it's a very, very, very terrible way to live your life. And so from that point on, I was I was like, I'm not going to do this again. And so that's why whenever I interview, um, I'm very honest. I'm more honest than, than you know, usually interview. Right. Uh, should be. <laughs> should be. Interview protocol says you should be. Yeah. You've mentioned your, you know, the, the your roots, like, you, you know, helping your mom in the kitchen, um, you know, your, your grandmother. Uh, inspiring right. the, the salad that you did for MasterChef. Um, so what is, and, and, and I know there was a, there was a short video where uh, one of the MasterChefs visited your home right. and your mother talked about, um, you know, that, that 
being an immigrant and how you were you were the oldest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm the oldest of my three siblings. Yeah. And so that really struck a chord with me because I've known uh, quite a few people over the years that uh, have that. Right. And it's this story of uh, an Im- immigrant coming to, to the States here, mm-hmm. having, you know, either an only child or having several children. But it's the oldest that is there that becomes the parent almost at times because things can seem so dire when you're in a, in a foreign country, foreign language, foreign people that, you know, it may be a supportive environment and it could be a hostile environment. And, and it's crazy to think that, you know, it's the child that sort of, sort of like encourages the, the, the adult. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you, you got this, right, <laughs> so to yeah. speak. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm curious if, you know, what was that like growing yeah. up and being seven, which is you're already conscious of what's happening. Right. No, I, I think you mentioned a key phrase uh, that happens in the immigrant experience and the immigrant narrative is when parents come over with children, especially of the age seven or eight, the roles flip in the household. You It ends up being those kids, seven years old, eight years old, eventually become the parents of the house. And the parents become dependent on them. So it's kind of like reverses the roles. They become children. You become the adult. And it's only because you're the first one to learn the language. You get put in school, you know, hopefully within six months, a year, you can speak enough where you can be understood. And then you just become the voice and the filter for your family. Uh, And that's what happened with me. And that's what happens with many people who have the immigrant experience, where if you went to the store go ask them what what's the price on this go tell them that if there's a letter that comes in the mail from the light company and you don't and they don't understand what it is read us this letter what does it say and if it's oh power's going to get cut off call them and tell them to give us another week so i spent a lot of my childhood calling places impersonating my parents um, where I would say, yeah, you know, I'm Mr. Cano or I'm Mrs. Cano and I'm calling about this uh, because they, they couldn't. Um, so at the age of seven, eight, I was thrown all these adult responsibilities and that truncated what you would expect a normal childhood to be of, oh, carefree, I'm out playing, you know. So I was exposed to a lot of adult issues and adult problems very early on in, in my life because of that, because I moved to, to Texas, because I lived in Houston, and I was the only one who spoke the language of this foreign land now. Um, another big thing is, like you were saying, no support system. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, we were the only ones here, so we had no one to ter- turn to. We could only turn to ourselves. So inevitably, you become not just like the parent uh, figurehead, the translator, the filter, uh, you also become like you, the support for your parents because they have no one to go to. So it's, it's just it, it's a really strange way of growing up when you go, when you go to another country and you have to fulfill all those roles at such an early age. It gives you a perspective on life that many don't get you know until their adult years. And at the time, it doesn't seem cool because you want to go outside and play. Um, you want to go spend the night at the classmate that invited you, but your parents trust nobody. They're like, no, we don't know who they are. We don't know their parents. We can communicate with their parents, so you can't go. So your life just becomes this this insulated bubble where you have to to develop a dual identity. You have to be one per, one version of yourself at home, and then when you're out at school or eventually work or whatever, you, you can be this other version that has assimilated into the culture. So... For me, 
I, I, I wasn't aware of that. Like I, I lived it, but I didn't know that I didn't have the terms for it until I was in college. Uh, because like I mentioned earlier, I spent all my summers reading, but I was reading all the classics, uh, which were written by male European writers. So I had only seen this one narrative and it wasn't until college that I took a minority writers class and like my 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 reading world just blew open again. It, you know, we were reading people like uh, Cisneros, um, Cofir, he's he's from Puerto Rican descent, uh, Amy Tan. Marquez. Yeah, Marquez. And I was like, oh, man, all these people have lived what I live. You know, they would tell stories of their childhood and how embarrassing it was to go somewhere in public. And, you know, the adults were trying to address your parents, but then your parents are addressing you. So you're addressing the adults. And I was like, ah, oh, they get it. I've lived through that. You know, Amy Tan's uh, The Joy Luck Club is, is still one of, and, you know, and she's of Chinese descent. But the immigrant experience, regardless of where you come from, is, is so similar. And then once I read them, I was like, then I understood everything that had happened to me. Like they gave me the terms and the words to describe what my childhood had been like. That's interesting because, uh, you know, coming from Puerto Rico, so it's, it's a bit different, I think, for, for us because being U.S. citizens, um, going to the U.S. is never a big deal. It's inevitable. It's, you know, whenever, you know, it's either for high school or college or to visit or to go get a job is and but you still have that experience in the sense that the language barrier and the way people perceive you is is different and so you know whether good or bad like you you have to deal with that mm -hmm. right and, and and i think it's for me i had a mix uh i i would go to schools where it was all hispanic population you know 80 percent so i was fine and then i'd you know move another grade and i have to go to another school where i was like maybe the one of 10 hispanics in the whole school and it was just like there were some people who were receptive to you and there was people obviously who fear change and, you know, show that fear through comments, through aggression, through non-friendliness or whatever. So in my experience, I got, I got to see both of them in a balanced way where I was never like, oh, this is this is terrible or wow, this is the greatest country in the world. But because I, I got treated both very well by people native to this country and then I could feel the the fear the resentment in other people from here you know i could talk to anybody but then in the lunchroom it was like no you can't sit at this table and it's like what the like you people are fucked <laughs> i mean that's just a very to me it was a very 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 foreign very strange um because at you know, puerto rico at, at the time whenever i came here i had classmates that were blonde and blue-eyed and uh you know that they were dark skin um, and when they opened their mouths, they sounded like Puerto they Ricans. They were all Puerto Ricans. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was, it was strange. And, and I think that that is, uh, one of those experiences that people don't really understand, uh, how it, uh, it affects you right. because, you know, even to this day, whenever I've spent here about 35 years of my life mm -hmm. and people are like, Oh, where are you from? It's like, well, I don't fucking know. I mean, exactly. If, if not from here. Where and and it's and, and and it's that, but it, it happens to me when I go to Mexico, where like you don't talk like us, you don't use. Oh, that's this, oh, that happened to me a while right? back. Yeah, where so, they're like, oh, where are you from? And like, I'm I'm from here. Exactly. Like, like you I'm don't like, talk like, like us, and I'm like, yeah, yes, I do. I was like that hospital you see over there, I was born over there. You yeah. Know? Um, and, and but yeah, it, it, 
being an immigrant and then returning is a, it, that was because I had to wait 10 years to be able to return to Mexico because of the legalities, you know, like my dad, uh, he'd been living here before us. So his his legal status was in order. But so he applied for us. But that takes an eternity. Um, so finally, when I was able to go back, it had been 10 years and I had forgotten everything. Not that I just forgot what, lo- what the lifestyle that it was over there. And the moment I got there, my cousins were like, wow, you talk differently. I was like, I'm talking Spanish. I still know Spanish because my, my parents made it a point for the language never to be lost. So at home, we always spoke Spanish. But they're like, but, but it's not the same accent. It's not the same tone that we have here. You talk like the people from over there. So then it became this this weird no man's land where I go home, what I call Mexico, and people can tell obviously that I don't live there. And then like yourself, I'm here and I meet someone and they ask me, where are you from? Because I don't look american or whatever that's supposed to mean you know yeah but that, that's that exactly and that's that's what i feel that needs to be redefined right. because it's sort of like you know if i spent 35 years here mm-hmm. and, and yeah, you know, yeah you know if i'm not from here then who is yeah right I just start saying so, i'm from planet earth you know right exactly. but it, it's it's like you know it's especially whenever we, we're still a, a melting pot mm-hmm. right as a country and then we're in one of we are the most diverse city yeah. in the nation right now currently mm-hmm. and so why is that question even relevant anymore? Right, right, um, right, yeah. Because, again, you spend your whole life here. You are educated here. Your contributions to the economy are here. <laughs> exactly. Your contributions to society are here. Mm-hmm. Contributions to the community are here. And so it's like, well, what else do I have to do? Right, yeah. You know, do I have to What else do I have hair? to do to prove myself? <laughs> <laughs> right, and, and I think that for the, those people have have issues mm-hmm. with themselves right yeah, yeah. right um because i think that whenever you i have had this conversation with uh the majority of people mm-hmm. that i've had this conversation with kind of think about it it's like yeah you're right that makes sense you know, if i think about it like my grand-grandfathers were from eastern europe and right. like you know but nobody ever asked me that exactly so people get it once you have the conversation with them because it's like you know what what is it so different about your life than mine right other than the foods we eat and I think at this point in Texas and in the United States, yeah. everybody eats about 40% of their diet is tacos. <laughs> 100, so, <laughs> 100%. Yeah, you, so, I agree with that for sure. You know, even if they're getting from uh, Taco Bell, the, yeah. the best taco restaurant in the nation, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> according to somebody, uh, that that's still it. So mm-hmm. so what is it that, right. that you're talking about? Exactly, right? yeah. Um, because it doesn't make any Why sense. Why can you accept some things from other cultures but not the people themselves? We're going to go ahead and stop that interview right there and go ahead and make it into a two-part series. Um, Cesar and I talked about a lot of things that I feel are um, necessary in the social uh, realm of uh, not just the bar and restaurant industry, but uh, in general. Uh, The other thing being that... uh, I don't feel like I have to prove myself to be any more American than anyone else or that I look. I think I look as about as American as, as apple pie. And, and that is that. So join me next week as we finish the uh, interview with uh, Cezanne. He um, is an interesting guy that has it shows he, he goes to show how small this uh, circle is in, in this industry given that he knows several people that I am currently working with and uh, I've never met this guy. He's been out of the industry for over a decade and pops back in and uh, 
and is connected. So tune in next week as I finish off the uh, conversation with uh, Cesar. Uh, also, there'll be a few more announcements uh, that I have uh, for uh, the next episode. So definitely tune in. Remember, take care of yourself, take care of each other, and keep the conversation going. <laughs>